I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Rachel Fox, entrepreneur and founder of You Go Girl Omaha. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. In addition to owning Catapult Consulting Solutions, Rachel also serves as a freelance instructor at the Metro Community College of Omaha, where she facilitates coding clubs and courses. She is also the president of Fox Flooring, a local flooring and remodeling company, which she cooperates with her husband, Brent. In 2018, she founded You Go Girl, a nonprofit organization dedicated to ending the cycle of self-doubt and low self-esteem in young women and girls by creating a vision for who they can be. Rachel holds a bachelor's degree in multidisciplinary studies from the University of Nebraska at Omaha and is pursuing a master's in leadership at Oral Roberts University. In 2019, she was named the Greater Omaha Chamber Young Professionals Changemaker and was a 2020 Toyo 10 Outstanding Young Omahans recipient. She was also a top finalist for the Mrs. Nebraska pageant in 2019 and 2020. Rachel also received a leadership award from the Leadership Africa Summit in 2019. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart, for having me. So I wanted to ask you maybe just to tell us a little bit about your family background, your upbringing, your childhood. That is such an interesting question, and feel free to stop me whenever, but um, I am not originally from Nebraska. I was born in Tupelo, Mississippi to uh, pastors. My mom and dad were both pastors. They still are to this day, and I don't really remember too much about Tupelo, but I do remember moving to Arkansas. So we lived in West Helena, Arkansas. Um, and because I have done a little bit of research uh, for writing my book, I know we lived on Lambert Drive. Um, and I remember us having, it was like um, an all black neighborhood, very um, family oriented, foundation of faith. And our house seemed to be like the most popular house on the block, or at least that's what I thought. We had a plum tree on the side of the driveway that kids would just come by and they would steal plums from our yard. And I got a kick out of it, but my dad hated that. He hated it so much. There was one time where a kid stole some plums and he took off in the field. And my dad literally legit took our Oldsmobile, our maroon Oldsmobile and chased him down like dog, the bounty hunter. I'm not even lying. And he got caught up with the kid. Now this is pastor Eggerson here. He caught up with the kid. He says, son, did you steal some plums out of my yard? And the, the boy was like, no, sir, I didn't do that. And he said, let me see what's in your hand. So the boy took the plums from behind his hand and his hands were so red and juicy because he, he was so scared. He squeezed the plums. And I just remember my dad was like, now, son, all you had to do was ask. 
All you had to do was ask for the plums. I would have given you the plums. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, no, he would have given him those plums. That was my dad's prized possession, his plum tree. Um, so, you know, I grew up a daddy's girl. I was always with my dad. That's all, all I remember from being a little child in my childhood, being with him, watching him preach from the, the pulpit and he was up on the stage and he did all these different grand gestures. And I thought like he was a superhero. That was my dad. And that was my childhood. I had, I have older sister and younger siblings and we, um, it just was a typical childhood, except for the fact that we were always in church. I always remember that. As soon as the, the lights came on, we were there, and we were there after everybody left. I had a very rich childhood, very close to my grandmothers, um, very close to my cousins, my aunts. We all sing. Um, we all have some sort of foundation that is rooted in faith. So, yeah. How did you make it to Omaha? Oh, my dad got a job. Uh, pastoring a Baptist church, Morningstar Baptist Church in 1989. I came here when I was six and we made the trip to Nebraska and I did not know what Nebraska was. All I knew was this happy-go-lucky little girl was going to this new place that nobody else got to go to. And boy, it was, um, it was interesting moving here to Nebraska. It was different. Nobody knew me. Um, I didn't have my friends from before. I wasn't popular anymore. Um, and I had to learn everything new. Um, so it was definitely different. All of us were going through transitions. My parents were, my siblings were, and I was. That feels like such a powerful observation that you were all in transition. Are you able, looking sort of in the rearview mirror, to look at your life and, and see ways in which those experiences in your life and those transitions have shaped who you are now? Oh, absolutely. I went from being this audacious, imaginative child in the South, um, coming here to the Midwest. Um, I had to shut off all those things that made me shine. Um, I became very introverted, socially awkward. I was annoying. Okay. I did a cartwheel and kicked one of my classmates in the head trying to impress them. I was just awkward. I didn't know how to fit in here. And so that type of behavior had followed me through my adolescent years, just trying to fit in and find my footing, find my grounding. Um, that sense of belonging added to the layer that I was, you know, oftentimes one of the only African-Americans in the spaces that I took up. I didn't really get the fact that this boy may not like me because I'm black. I just thought he didn't like me because, you know, he likes somebody else, you know. Um, I didn't really understand the different variants of, you know, race and racism and all that. I just was like, maybe they don't like me because I'm just a different, awkward black girl from Arkansas. So I try to change my dialect. I changed, I had a really strong Southern drawl. And as soon as that was called out, I shut that off and I tried to mimic the behaviors and the dialect from my classmates. So there have been a lot of growing pains as it relates to evolving into the woman I am today, but it certainly, it certainly followed me that transitionary period and not really ever finding that, um, that footing has been an interesting uh, journey for me. Thank you.
this is, you know, a long leap forward, but it's hard not to imagine how some of your experiences, um, both as a girl, then as a young woman, and now as an adult woman, have maybe informed this desire to set up You Go Girl um, in 2018. Maybe that's too much of a reach, but maybe you would explain why you founded You Go Girl and what it does. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not too far of a reach because now that I have children, I'm able to see little glimpses of myself in them. Good, bad, otherwise, I see myself in them. And when one of my children came home one day from school, from middle school, and middle school is tough for everybody, but it's also tough when you have had to overcome or battle through a rare illness, and then on top of that, be bullied for what you look like. When my daughter came home uh, with a face full of tears, I didn't, I saw past her, I saw myself. I saw myself sitting in my bedroom crying and not knowing who to go to because I didn't want to bother my parents with it. My sister had her own stuff going on and not being able to tell anybody that I'm, I'm struggling just to belong, to be myself. And that's where the yearning to found something where girls and women can feel inspired um, and it wasn't just for the ones that were getting picked on. It was the ones who felt they needed to pick on someone else. Because usually when you're hurting and you have unresolved issues, it comes out in some awkward ways, like kicking somebody in the head to belong, you know? Um, that's, that's where You Go Girl started. I really just wanted to have an event. Um, but I found that when I was trying to start the event or get, you know, backing for the event, I needed to have something more to stand on. And that is why um, I founded You Go Girl as a nonprofit organization. And we've been able to touch lives from then on because of that just idea that what if we had this space where girls and women can see what it looks like to be successful, to see examples of scientists doctors, um, lawyers, politicians, all of that in one space, because if they can see it, then they can be it. And they won't reach for the other things like low self-esteem, self-doubt, picking on others, getting in bad relationships. So that's where You Go Girl started. And that's why it's my heartbeat today. So maybe you could explain a little more then about how you envisaged what You Go Girl would be at the outset and, and maybe how it's developed over the last few years. I mean, I, I would imagine that there's, um, I hate to say it, but I would imagine that there's quite a lot of demand for, for this kind of supportive uh, initiative. Yeah, absolutely. So we started, like I said, just to have an event, well, once a year event for girls and women. And what started as that has now turned into different programs. Like we have a coding program where we teach girls how to code and build websites and teach them different programming languages and share with them examples of women in the field that are doing amazing things. And we've been able to combine with Metro Community College, other local, uh, local organizations like Flywheel to be able to share with girls and women um, that want to re-enter into a different field that it's possible for them. Um, we also took under our belt the Omaha Women's Day March, and that is showing girls and women that it's they can use the power of their voice now. They can be civically engaged now. They can run for office now. They don't have to wait 
they can do it right now, right where they are. And we um, are also in, we're in the beginning phases of talking about um, launching some type of a reading program to expand on literacy with some of the underserved populations that we have and giving them books um, from ages zero all the way to, to five and then all the way into adolescence. So we're expanding, we're growing, we have book clubs, we have entrepreneur camps, allowing girls to be financially stable. We've, we've collaborated with a ton of organizations to be able to bring these things to life. And yeah, we continue to get emails and phone calls from people, from parents, from other organizations who want to get behind what we're doing. I mean, Stuart, we got an email from Asia, from an organization in Asia who wants to expand on the technology, getting more girls in technology. Their, their organization is called Command Tech. And this is a group of teenage girls who heard about You Go Girl and they wanted to join forces with us. So what started off as, hey, let's just show, let's just show Omaha what we can do, what girls can do, what women can do, has turned into something more than I could have ever imagined. And I'm excited for what it may become in the future. And I'm getting things primed for when I'm no longer here, when I when I'm able to pass the baton on to someone else, because I recognize that it's bigger than me. And I want to be able to plant that seed, watch it grow, and then go on to something else. How have you changed as a result of You Go Girl? That is a very interesting question because I feel like I'm still changing as a result of You Go Girl. I, just, I feel like when we started things out, I didn't know how things were going to go. I was nervous. I was anxious. I was awkward. I was meeting with people all around the community, probably looking like a chicken with my head cut off asking for money. And um, now I feel like I found my soul's purpose, you know, and it doesn't stop there. It's just kind of like this, this ever evolving thing. There's always a new layer of something. When I first started it, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that, Hey, I want to pass this off to somebody else. No, because it was my baby. It's my idea. I want to grow with it. But now I feel like I'm growing with the organization and I can see past myself and I can see someone else taking the vision further than I ever could. And that's a humbling moment and it's scary, but I'm, I'm ready for, for something like that. I'm ready to see a budding leader show up and say, Hey, I love what you're doing. How about we do it this way? I, I'm, I'm searching for that. You know, uh, whereas when I first started, I maybe not, would not have done that because it was so close to me. It was close to my daughter. It's the organization I founded because of my daughter. But it's so much more than that now. I'm maturing. I hope that um, my story resonates and it helps other people learn and grow. Um, but any anymore, I'm just going back and I'm going through all the phases. Even as you ask that question, I'm like, wow, I think I am growing up. And you, you go, girl, it's, it's, it's showing me how to grow up a little bit more. Sunday morning, so fly, coffee going quiet side, and everything is alright, there's a breeze coming in the wind. Track of time, you make me 
It seems to me as if there is something maybe innately or something you've groomed within yourself that is entrepreneurial. I wonder if that is something you recognize in yourself uh, being an entrepreneur. And if you do, when, when did that start to emerge? When did you realize that that was something um, intrinsic to who you are? Well, I think in retrospect, I can trace back the the moments in my life when my dad wasn't a pastor. He was a door-to-door insurance salesman. And my dad used to let me know that there is nothing impossible for you. Don't take no for an answer. And I, even though I went through the things I went through in my childhood and kind of tried to shut off those different valves of um, curiosity and tenacity and boldness, they were still there. And when I decided to come out of the corporate world and start my own thing, those things were bubbling up already. It just needed the right opportunity. And that opportunity presented itself when my child got sick and I was between a rock and a hard place. I couldn't, I could not go back into the working environment and have a child that was fighting for her life. I just couldn't do that. But I also know myself, I needed to work. I needed to do something. I, I, I had all these ideas. I've always been an ideas person. I've always said, oh, well, what if we did it this way? Or if you're writing something down or you're typing on a typewriter, hey, no, there's an app for that. If, and if there's not an app for that, why don't we invent something for that? I'm, I'm the one, Stuart, that would say, you know, I've got this really cool idea, okay? And, it, it, and then my husband's like, that already exists. I'm like, but it doesn't exist like this. Listen, I am the one who is always thinking of new ways of doing things. And I love that. I look at processes that are always going on. And if somebody tells me we're doing it now because that's the way we've always done it, I'm going to challenge it every single time. So that's always been inside of me. Even like when my dad would preach at church and he would say something was in the Bible. I'm the one that's like this. Is it really in the Bible? Where is it in the Bible? I would, I mean, that's just been in me since I was very young, since I could remember. So that entrepreneurial spirit has always been there. I think that my dad instilled that in me by being a door-to-door insurance salesman. And then when I, when I was 18, I sold insurance for a mutual of Omaha. You know, it's just, it's just in me. It's who I am. Um, And I, until I actually stepped out and knew it was possible, I was just kind of, gathering my thoughts, gathering all these different things. But like I said, just need an opportunity to bubble up and just come to fruition. Ordinarily, I would try to avoid, you know, what might seem to be gender biased questions, um, Mm -hmm. unless appropriate to the context. But um, I want to mention that you have 10 children. 11. You better get it right. Oh, my goodness. Look at me under (laughs) under counting. Uh, 11 and we have a grandbaby. And so statistically, that, that is you know, really at the outlier end of the spectrum, which is therefore why I mention it. And I mention it in particular because we're talking about entrepreneurship and I think work-life balance and other sort of stereotypical gender expectations are these sort of really pernicious and tenacious challenges that confront women. 
at the same time as women, I think, are being told to lean in and so on and so forth. And so I'm just wondering if in that much bigger context, are these issues you've had to uh, confront, issues around expectations, issues around work-life balance, resisting or accepting or embracing a sort of lean-in mantra? Yes. I would say this, that whenever I tell anybody how many children I have, first of all, they're just like, oh my God, I can't believe you have as many kids as you have, you know, and then I have to go back through and explain to them. Some of my children are adults. Some of them don't live here. Um, Many of them do live here in the same household. And we have a wide range of needs and personalities and ages. And to be able to balance that with also being an entrepreneur, a nonprofit founder, and all the things that I am, I'm always mindful of the balance. And it is not something that I have a prescription for, but I have fought those different, um, you know, stereotypes that go along with that. Oh, you couldn't possibly do this because, or, or you probably so busy. You know, people make that assumption. Even when I get emails, you're probably so busy. And I always have to wonder to myself, what would make them think that I'm so busy? You know, I'm just downstairs on my couch having an interview with Stuart uh, while my kids are upstairs. But I always have to rise to the occasion and, 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 and provide some insight into my life. Everybody has different capacities. I didn't pray for 11 children when I was younger. I didn't say, oh gosh, I want to be a mom. This is just something that has happened as a result of being an adult and having sex and having children along the way, you know, that kind of things happen. Um, But, you know, we, we make it work for us. We make it work for us. And having children does not um, negate my ability to perform. It doesn't uh, negate my ability to show up. Some people might say, because you're a mom, you're not able to do these things. And I say, yeah, because I'm a mom, I am able to do these things. I am a huge advocate of women who stay at home. They're at home with their children. Because of the pandemic, we're also teachers. We are so many things. And I've recently um, been faced with even women maybe saying comments about, you know, the fact that maybe I have a, a lot going on it's only a lot for the person who, does, who doesn't walk in my shoes. Somebody who doesn't have any kids can't fathom having seven children at home and being able to even just show up in the morning. But it works for me. It works for me. And anybody who tells me what I cannot do because I have children, they've made the wrong assumption and I will prove them wrong every single time. I have a skepticism around the idea of pageants. And yet I've also learned to be skeptical of my own opinions and beliefs. And and that's something that's just happened more recently with a little bit more maturity. And so I'm wondering about the pageants that you have chosen to enter and been successful at. Um, And I just want to get a sense from you about the whys of entering pageants and what they entail. So when I first entered into the Mrs. Nebraska pageant um, in 2019, I was introduced to it by um, Anna Peters, and she was Mrs. Nebraska 2018. She also spoke at the very first You Go Girl Summit. So those lines kind of 
kind of connected. And she said, you know what, you would be great for Mrs. Nebraska. And I'm like, really? You think I could do something like that? And, you know, growing up, we used to watch the pageants like on Sunday night, me and my family would watch all the beauty pageants, um, all the different things. And we, I loved them. I had always wanted to be some conglomerate of an actress, singer, model, just a star, okay? I just was all full of myself when I was younger, um, if you can't tell. So anyway, so <laughs> when, when, when the opportunity came for me to do something like this, I talked to my husband. I said, you think I could do something like this? He's like, yeah, why not? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm old. I'm married, you know? And he said, well, why not? And I said to myself, why not me? And I just did it just, just for fun. You know, there's some notion behind when people just have to have an ultimate reason for doing something. I said it because I had never done it before. The opportunity was there. I said, why not? Why not? So that's why I did it. But when I got into um, that space, I noticed something very interesting that I was the only woman of color that was competing. Um, and there's only been a handful of us who have made it to the top finalists. No woman of color has ever won Mrs. Nebraska. And that, uh, my friend, peaked that little uh, thing inside of me that wants to kind of buck up against different systems and, and those types of things. So it became, quickly it became an initiative to see that the first black woman become crowned as Mrs. Nebraska. And I have my platform. And, you know, when you're running for pageants, you're typically you're having some type of a platform and whether it's heart disease or, you know, for me, it was you go girl, because that was easy. I empower women. Um, and it's so much more than the beauty aspect. I still have a little bit of a problem with parading around the stage uh, and allowing people to judge you based upon what you look like. Um, signing up for something like that still gives me some sort of but it's also a proud moment for the women who are there. They've worked out, they have done their best, they've gotten their best garments. And sometimes this is the only time they get to pamper themselves. This is the first time that I get to say, what dress do I want to wear? What, what, do I, what lipstick do I want to put on? I get to go to the spa and get my nails done and my hair done. Typically moms are putting everybody else first. I'll tell you right now, I woke up this morning and at 7 a.m., my, my son wants chocolate milk and waffles. Before I am even able to wipe the crust out of my eyes, he wants chocolate milk, waffles, and then, by the way, I want your phone too. So this, this pageant allowed me the opportunity to pamper myself, to treat myself as a, like royalty. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's vain and people say it's all woo woo, but you know what? it serves a purpose and it allows people to know more about you and, and, um, and about the things that you're, you're passionate about. So I made top five. Uh, the first time, which was great. I've never done anything like this before. And to have it at my first round, to make it all the way to top five, get placed third or whatever, that was great. And then um, I was like, but I'm never doing it again. I don't want to do it again. Never. 
And then a few months passed. And then I was like, and they kept, they kept reaching out to me and say, you should do it again. You should do it again. And I was like, fine, I will do it again, but I'm only doing it because I want to see Nebraska crown its first African-American woman as Mrs. Nebraska. So I went through the whole process again and uh, I was pregnant this time. I was pregnant with my, with my eldest, my youngest son, Jackson. And I was going to compete at eight months pregnant. I had all my maternity gowns, everything like that. And then the stuff started happening where Ahmaud Aubrey, George Floyd, um, the Black Lives Matter, um, social, racial injustice, all the different things start bubbling up. And there were some just some, some things that were said and done that just made, didn't sit well with me, but I still was going to compete no matter what. I still, it was still important to me to see that even more so that representation of a, a black woman being in this pageant or whatever that means for anybody else. Um, there's somebody always looking at you. So I didn't give up and they postponed because of the pandemic. They postponed again after I had the baby um, and I competed again and I placed in the, the top five. I got third again. And that one, my friend, that really hurt because I was like, dang, I don't know what more I can do. I mean, I have done everything I could possibly do to win this thing. And I thought, you know, to myself that, I mean, that, that I, that I would have won, that it would have finally been the time that that happened. And I didn't, and I told the judge, I said, I don't want to win because I'm black, but wouldn't it be, it be great if the best woman won and that person were also black out of all the many years, this should not be the first in 2021. It should not be the first in 2020, it shouldn't be the first. So, um, so there, that's, that's, that's why I did it the second time. First time it was for me. Second time it was, I was making a statement. I was, I clearly wanted to see more representation within this pageant system. It did not happen. I will not do it again. Um, but I, I, I am doing what's called blazing a trail because there's somebody that's going to come after me and there's somebody that's going to win that crown. And, um, I hope it happens in my lifetime. I'm just wondering if you get tired of just being Rachel Fox, the person you are, but people won't leave you alone. They want you to be a role model that fits them or their agenda or some need that they have. Is that something you encounter? And is it, is it just a bit tedious? We all get tired. I get tired. I, I wrote down, I write every morning. I write in a journal. And one of my mornings, I'll read to you what, what happens. I said, I want to be sympathetic, but I'm not because if I don't cry when I wake up in the morning, no one should. I was talking about how my, my kids were crying and whining and stuff like that as soon as they woke up in the morning. And I said, if, listen, if I don't cry in the morning when I wake up, no one should. And I was just thinking about all the different things that I've had to go through. And it is a heavy weight to bear to um, feel as though you have to show up in a certain way at a certain time for people. But I will tell you this, the, the blessing of the pandemic for me was that I was able to slow down and really uncover what it means to be authentic and own who I am. And sometimes I'm not okay. And it's okay not to be okay every moment of every day. Sometimes I am filled with anxiety 
or I feel as though I don't belong in spaces where I've been invited. To say that I'm a role model just makes me want to crawl back into a hole sometimes because I don't feel worthy. I've done things that aren't, aren't, you know, right sometimes. And what if anybody finds those things out, but going through the, a, a journey of trying to rediscover my authentic self in this last year has really allowed me to say that I am who I am. Sometimes I'm not at my best. And I think it's that authenticity that touches people the most because then they are able to say, oh, I thought I had to be perfect. I thought that I had to have eyes dotted and T's crossed. Um, you know, behind this makeup are some scars from acne. Um, I have split ends. I'm not perfect. I, you know, sometimes my kids get on my nerves and I'll say a cuss word or two, you know, and sometimes they will. I, I, it took me the longest time to get my four-year-old to stop saying shit. I mean, really. Um, but it's those moments that, you know, my humanity shines through and I'm not ashamed of it before I was ashamed of it. And yes, it gets exhausting. And that's why I have to start. I have to even more so prioritize myself to the top, because if I don't do that, you're not going to get the best version of me. If I haven't filled my cup, you're going to get the cranky me. You're going to get the whiny me. You're going to get the bitchy me. But if I have filled myself up, then I can give out more. And then I'm able to show up as people expect me to. But I am not always on. And if that's okay. Flying on a jet plane, sipping on some champagne, yeah. Plan on making memories, cruising in a Bentley, yeah. Can we leave all of the past behind? It would be no surprise for people, I think, in, in many cities, in many small towns or, you know, towns like Omaha across the country, that they are concerned about retaining young professional talent and attracting young professional talent. It seems in Omaha, a challenge that is facing this community in particular is, is not necessarily just brain drain of young professional talent, but it's in particular minority young professional talent that is leaving the city at higher rates. I don't know if that's um, something you have a particular view about. What, what What is appealing about the city for you? What might be appealing about the city for other people? And frankly, why should people leave? You know, that is a question that I have addressed a couple of times, and I've thought about it myself. If I were a young, younger, because I still think I'm young, still think I'm young, um, but if I were younger, um, and I was fresh out of college and I was looking for an opportunity and I happened to be living in Omaha in this season, I would stay because people are actually coming here. However, as a person of color, I do 
understand, am acquainted with that there's only so far you can go. I have been a product of the lateral move um, where you can't go up, you can just go sideways. Um, And swimming sideways is exhausting. And it wears down on your ability to think higher of yourself because maybe an employer doesn't think higher of you. Um, They don't want to pay you what you're worth. Um, They come up with all these different dangling carrots. Well, if you get this degree, if you get this certification, we'll pay you more. And you understand, you compare stories with other individuals of color and you find out that you have one thing in common that it's that it's happening to you, then you feel as if you have to leave and go and find an opportunity elsewhere. You put applications out and you don't get any bites back, or maybe you apply somewhere else and they do call you back. Then that would be, you're going where the opportunity lies for you. So while we are trying to retain talent and especially um, talents of diverse backgrounds and and, um, nationalities, we need to also be taking an inward look at, at, the, at our own inventory and seeing how we are leveraging the human capital. Are we bringing in the talent? Are we actively seeking out to be a diverse um, organization or are we just saying it with lip service? I said it before when, when the things were happening, the uprising with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and, and Breonna Taylor and all these different things, what's gonna happen when it's not sexy anymore to talk about diversity and inclusion and equity? What's gonna happen? What's going to happen when the squeaky wheel gets annoying for demanding that they get equal pay for asking the questions or will they start getting penalized again? Um, these, are, these are issues that are not um, unique to Omaha, but when you are here, you were born here, you spent the majority of your life here, everybody thinks that it's going to be better when they leave. And some may find success when they do leave, but then others might find that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. And if, and if it's greener on the other side, you have to water the lawn on both sides. I mean, the, seriously, it could get bad where you are. Um, so my, my thoughts are, we have got to do better as organizations. And then as individuals, I would really vet out why you think you um, might find more success somewhere else. I believe in the promise of Omaha. That's why I'm here. That's why I've stuck my my stake in the ground. That's why I have my nonprofit organization here. The community is my heartbeat. It's an extension of my family. My children are here. My businesses are here. Right now, I can say that I wouldn't be anywhere else. Some people think about leadership in terms of leading with the heart, something about leading with the head. Uh, some people don't draw a distinction between leading in that particular way. And, and I wonder for you if there are particular lessons that you've learned and maybe that you share with others about how and when you should lead. That's an interesting question because really when you talk about leadership, you have to really quantify that and understand what, what somebody means when they say leadership. Because to me, by virtue of the fact that you're influencing someone, you're leading. You could be doing that by simply sitting at a coffee shop Uh, reading a newspaper, your mannerisms could lead someone to believe this or that. When you talk about leadership, I think that it is an incredible responsibility to nominate yourself as a leader or to take on that title that somebody has given you and should not be taken lightly. How that shows up, it, it may be different for 
different people. For me, though, I take it very seriously. I give honor to where honor is due. And for me, I when I look at somebody as far as leadership, I look at their behaviors. I look at how they how they present themselves and make themselves available to me if I if ever I need them. Because sometimes people can present one way. And then when you reach out to them, they show you something different. And that that kind of distorts your view of their leadership. So I always look at somebody's consistency, how they're behaving on and offline when people are watching and when they don't think anybody is watching. Um, And so I try to model that as well. And like I said before, I'm not always perfect. And leaders are not always expected to be perfect. I mean, people face plant all the time. But the thing is that makes a leader stand out is their ability to own their faults as well as their successes. In your life, who has shown you hope? Who has inspired the leadership in you? Number one, I'm going to say is my husband. He's the one who put the fire in my belly about starting my own business. And then also encouraged me to get out and start networking. Because when I first started, I was incredibly um, nervous. I told you that I was an awkward child growing up. I developed social anxiety disorder. And I also um, became very introverted. Um, And some of that was very situational by being on different jobs and things of that nature. But anyway, I was still awkward. And I didn't want to network. I didn't want to meet up with people. But my husband kept pushing me out there saying, go, hand out your business card, go do this, do that. I didn't want to go alone. I wanted him to be there with me. I wanted to hold his hand. I wanted to, you know, to make sure that he was there as my security. And he kept pushing me out there and pushing me out there. And now here I am today on a call with you being able to put sentences together effectively. Yes. Smile and nod. Yes. And to show up in ways that I never would have thought that I could. So my husband, uh, when I started You Go Girl, when I was thinking about You Go Girl, Winsley Durand from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce, he believed in me. He believed in me. And he still believes in me. And he's been whispering my name to other people in positive ways, in more ways than I ever would have known. The folks at um, Nebraska Enterprise Fund, B.C. Clark. Uh, Jim over there, Nancy Williams. I remember sitting down with her at um, kitchen table and I was telling her my vision and she was just like, listen, stop with the nerves. You're so nervous. Just be who you are. And I mean, she poured into me. Shauna Dorsey um, has been very instrumental in in my life. Victoria Novak. Um, There's just so many people that have really just poured into me. My mom, um, talk about falling apart on the floor. My mom is the one who I ran from trying to be like when I was growing up. And I am more just in awe of the woman that she is. And I'm proud when anybody even would even compare me to her now. Um, And to think I used to just not even want to be anything like her. Um, She is uh, a rock for me. So those are just a few people that I could mention. My father, obviously, he's my hero. Um, still look up to him today and look for him uh, to pour wisdom into me. But those individuals, some of those individuals are very instrumental to who I am today.
I, I don't want to finish without at least asking you about what's next for you. What do you have? Uh, you know, what's your next aspiration? You already seem to have been doing so much, achieved so much, accomplished so many good things for yourself and the community. With that being said, though, what, what is next? And um, by all means, also share what uh, what the book means as well. Absolutely. So that is the next big thing is my first book. Hopefully it won't be the last. And it's really been a uh, an interesting thing because I have been writing this book off and on for a very long time. People have told me, oh gosh, you should write a story about that. You should write a your story about that. And honestly, my book is not a memoir. It's a collection of stories. Like some I shared with you even today are in the book. Um, but it, the book is called Right Back to Me because what I've noticed is that along my journey, I could blame, and it's more comfortable to blame other people or situations for things that happen in your life. But the aha moment comes when you are able to own your part in what has happened in your life. Um, and it's a freeing, sobering moment to say, yeah, that comes right back to me. So some of the stories are funny. I talk about pride. I talk about jealousy. I talk about uh, business fails. Um, I talk about how I grew up. But all of those lead, lead back to me in, in some, some form or another. So that's what the book is about. Um, and I would love to write more about my life, like maybe even do some type of a memoir. I don't think I'm that important right now to write a memoir. And plus, there are some people I'm still mad at. There are some things I'm still working through, some stories I can't talk through without getting mad. So I'm told that when you're writing a memoir, you should be able to resolve those issues first before you do that. Um, but I have children's books inside of me. I have book series inside of me kind of taking a little play off of the little girl that I was the awkward little girl that I was the imaginative little girl that I was. And I also would love, love, love to um, work on a female um, movement, if you will, expounding upon the voices of women. So think about this, the vow, the voices of women. Um, and I don't even know if that exists, but I'm going to create it. And I would love to get their voices either on in literature, um, audio, or some type of visual presentation. And I've already done my first interview um, with somebody and we're talking about leadership. So that's part of actually my capstone for my master's project, but I'm going to continue on with it. So it's just really collecting the stories of these women whose, whose stories need to be heard. They need to be told, and I want to do that. So, and maybe have some type of a show. I don't know. Oprah's Oprah's one of my heroes. She doesn't know that we're friends yet, but I think she's gonna know one of these days. But <laughs> um, I, I look to her. She was actually in pageants pageants as well. Those are some of the things that I'm looking forward to. First, getting a publisher for my book um, that's coming out this year. And I have four publishers that are interested already. So, and I talked to one of them today. So that is very exciting. Uncharted territory for me. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just putting my soul out there and hoping that it will be well-received. And even if it's not, I can say that I finished something and I actually put it out there to the world. My guest today has been Rachel Fox, entrepreneur and founder of You Go Girl Omaha. 
Rachel, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time and your wisdom and experience with us today. Thank you, Stuart. Always a pleasure. Oh, this is so fun, Stuart. I love talking to you all the time. (laughs) Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast. We accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.